This is an ABC podcast. Hello, Anne Jones here, and this is Off Track. Now, have you ever been lurking on the internet and seen, you know, like a picture of a raccoon sneaking a chocolate biscuit and written a comment that's like, oh, that's my spirit animal? Yeah. Well, I'm pretty sure that I have, probably multiple times, and the more that I learn about human relationships with nature, the more I realise that I was wrong to say that. But what these sorts of situations do say to me is even when we're being flippant and probably racist on the internet, we see ourselves reflected in nature. And I've been talking about this sort of thing with Fatima Meesham, writer conservation volunteer and my friend. And for today's episode of Off Track, Fatima is taking control of the microphone down by the Werribee River on Wadawurrung country in Victoria with the guests that she wanted to chat to about these exact issues about nature, language, race and belonging. Maddox Stephanie, I'm a language officer at Wadawurrung Traditional Owners Aboriginal Corporation and the Wadawurrung Traditional Owner. I'd like to acknowledge my Wadawurrung Traditional Owners and Elders of the past, present and those emerging. I'd also like to acknowledge and pay respects to any other Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander person. We are meeting at Wadawurrung Yaluk, the Wadawurrung River. Wadawurrung meaning the spine, so it's the backbone of Wadawurrung country. Quite a significant river system around this way. It branches off into many, many different veins and bloodlines of of Wadawurrung country. So very, very important piece of landscape here. I also want to pay my respects to our Wadawurrung neighbours as well. And as we move further along the river, our Wadawurrung neighbours as well. I'm James, I work for Wyndham City, but I'm here as just as a resident. I'm from South Sudan originally, and I've been here for about 13 years. I'm on the land of the Wadawurrung people, who gave us the privilege of being visitors to this place. As a visitor, I know I'm coming into a place that had terrible history, and basically I'm part of that history too. It means responsibility to actually undo that history and as a personal promise I would say I will try as, as much as I can to learn to learn this. I'll try my best as I can. Steph I just want to ask you something because something that's often bothered me was the way people in the West kind of refer to spirit animals like I've taken personality quizzes as well you know where you pick what you might do in a scenario and then the quiz determines what kind of animal you are so I've taken a quiz and apparently I'm a wombat but I feel like um, in water on culture it's actually deeper and more complex and richer than that can you tell us a bit about um, the watering approach and relationship to animals and nature in general yeah so our Wadawurrung old people, we, we have such a special connection to the animals. When we're, when we're giving 
a name. We have we have a birth name, but we're also associated with animals. So my animal is the sugar glider. I was given that because I'm a creature of the night, so they say. So I tend to stay up <laughs> very, very late. Um, but that's since I was a very small child. But I associate really closely to that animal because I mean they're they're small and cute and fluffy so I think there's that um but it's um it's that really special connection and having and having that animal associated in that way you know it's a it's a feeling that you have to protect it you know I'm I'm the guardian now of that animal and it's a very small fragile thing that needs to be looked after and a lot of our old people feel that same way you know it's um we're we're connected to country we're connected to culture we're connected to these animal spirits and we have Banjo our creator spirit who created everything you know he created the mountains he created our your look our rivers our waters the people and also the animals and and connecting in that way is we don't we don't own the country. We don't own water on country. Country owns us, you know, Ja owns us. That's yeah. really beautiful. It kind of sort of brings out that interdependence and sort of that balance and equality in relationship. But I want to home in on, on that idea of responsibility too, because it's not just, it's not like a personality quiz or, or like a horoscope or a zodiac. It's about responsibility and being accountable for the place of that animal in that system. Did I get that right? Yes, yes, pretty much. So with, um, uh, so yeah, I'll use the sugar glider again as, um, as an example, as my animal. It's my duty and my responsibility to protect that animal. And um, that duty, that responsibility extends to all of the animals living within Wadarang country. So if your, if your animal was cooing, a fish, for example, you had control of that animal. You were able to determine whether, you know, people were allowed to fish for that animal. You know, if you felt that the population wasn't that great, then you had control over the protection of that animal and making sure that it was still there in 20 years time and making sure that you know all the boobops or the little baby cooing were thriving and growing older you know that that was your that was your responsibility that's yeah. so cool because within the context of a family or a clan or a language group you'd have a diversity of people who each had their own responsibility and it works together in a system Again, like I, I keep using that word, but I, I just wanted to sort of emphasize the idea of diversity too. It's not just you alone somehow having this single responsibility. It works within a network of accountability. With, yeah with other people too. Yeah, well, that's right. And um, if you've ever heard the, the phrase, takes a village to raise a child, it's not just one person looking after that boop that child or that barano, you know, it's it's the whole community, it's the whole family groups and um yeah, the whole mob looking after looking after that child and whether that child is an actual human child or whether it's uh Kuin or Bunia or Koala, Nambu Mumun, you know, so on and so forth. But let me turn to James Lombe. Yeah. What's the cuckoo approach to nature and wildlife? In terms of the cuckoo, and the cuckoo are really a small community. I think there's about 200,000 people. We spread all over the world as well because of war. When I left the country, I was like, this is trouble. I just want to go somewhere peaceful and find my place. And then the more you travel, 
the more you learn about yourself, about where you come from. Because until you're actually confronted by difference, you wouldn't know who you are, I mm -hmm. think. And so for me, I started reflecting on our culture after learning about Aboriginal culture here. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And for me, in, in Kuku culture, I'm one of the people in that generation who had the opportunity to hear stories from elders. And that was before the war where we would go visit our grandparents, tell us stories. And the stories are usually more about ethics and, and morals and, and justice and, and fairness. But in all those stories, the characters are animals. Mm. And so, it, because we know that as a character, we can actually pinpoint and say, hey, you are behaving like so and so. Tell the person that story about what happened. Let's say they're behaving like a rabbit today. And basically, that idea of storytelling about animal characters that actually talk about people kind of connects people to, to animals a lot. But it's not only that. Uh, back in my town, I, on, I looked back, there is, there is reserves. Hmm. I don't think we call them reserved, but there were sacred places like really, really thick forested areas that only particular people are allowed to go there during certain times to perform rituals. And if you're invited to go there, you never to touch anything apart from just walking. I experienced this myself during the war. We ran away to, uh, to another village and that, that village got attacked. But uh, an elder within our community said, there's a place just across from the other hill that we had to run there and we will be safe. And I asked why. He said, nobody, nobody comes here. Right. Because if they come, it could be rain, it could be thunder, it could be things mm. that can happen to that person. And basically, when you go into those places, you're supposed to, to forgive and forget about whatever happened and just go in, take your time. You're not supposed to say anything. And we did. We went in there. It's like the most calmest place ever. Uh, we saw the like, biggest fish I've ever seen in that river when I was supposed to touch them because it's a spiritual place. And the people who are shooting behind us couldn't get there because they know they can't go there if they're not invited. And so this, there's so many of those forests for different reasons. And only particular people are allowed to go there. But it becomes a sanctuary for animals. If you're a hunter, animal runs there, you're like, see you next time. Yeah. You go back because you're not invited, yep. you know, and that ties in really well in terms of that spiritual the belief that the rivers, the mountains, the animals have spirits in them. It makes you want to respect, like you want to respect them the way they are. They're not just there for you to take or to to use to extract. It's not for extraction. It's there on their own behalf. Does yeah. that resonate with you a, a lot? A lot, a lot. We share, you know, we have a lot of our stories, a lot of our dreamings in regards to law and rules to abide by in regards to looking after jail, looking after country. So yeah, that entirely resonates, but even, even that sharing of the spirit, but even each animal, each spirit, each, each creature also has its own unique personality and identity as well. We have, we have many, many dreamings. Uh, we have, um, story then in Ballarat of a bunny on an old warrior volcano spirit and Darren Allen another old warrior volcano spirit actually fighting each other you know so it's, it, it extends more to you know even the country itself um, 
but even even like with language, you know, you hear Paul and the magpie in the morning. He's singing and he's telling you his name. He's singing you his name. You've got Bunia when you hear him flowing through, even even down in Wetapi, and when they meet at the mouth, um, you can hear them all all telling your name. Um, the wind, the rustling in the in the leaves, you know, it's um. Yeah, they all, it's all a unique, special personality that links in with each other and that spirit. I just want to refer now to the place that I'm from, which is in the southern island of Mindanao in the Philippines, where there's like heaps of um, different indigenous language groups as well. And one of them, there's a Lumad. So the Lumads are a group of several groups of indigenous peoples and one of the leaders I remember reading he said that if the forest goes that we goes and I remember having to sit with that well why would he say that that sounds really dramatic but then you think about the practices that he has that are involved in sort of the harvesting of animals particular animals that are hunted the ceremonies that are conducted around waterfalls and the special places in where they live you know if if the forest is is gone then we're gone as, as well our sense of who we are is also gone how does that like sit with you both in terms of i mean i think we all share a history of colonization <laughs> actually so let's touch on that in terms of what the impact of, of that of colonization is it's very it's very tricky because in Wetarang, you know we're still um we're still picking up the pieces mm. it's all about revival and revitalization and you know I'm speaking language a lot yeah. <laughs> throughout this but that's that's all part of the journey as well and back in primary school I was told that our people were extinct mm. <laughs> you know we didn't exist at all yeah. you know but that journey of identity and everything is some um, it's a long road mm. you know um I feel right now you know, I feel quite at peace with that journey and being able to share what I know and you know what I grew up with but asked me that 10 years ago yeah. and I couldn't even tell you you know I, I knew the stories but didn't know the identity you know I didn't have that it's not that I didn't have the connection it's that there was a, a kind of stigma not feeling like you belong in one way or another you know, so. And I think that's where being on country is really important, I imagine, for you, that idea of belonging. Mm. So I'm going to touch on my personal story as well, because like, as, a, as a brown woman, I struggled a lot. I arrived in 2000, so there was a lot of really horrible language over the past you know, 20 years or so about people who look like me or who have dark skin like me. So I always felt really alienated and displaced. I'm trying not to cry. <laughs> and um, I remember standing on the cliffs of lawn and suddenly sort of feeling really wrapped by the smell of eucalypts. Mm. And, first, and I suddenly had a sense of how old the land is underneath my feet. Mm. And I sort of had this sense of that, that, that there's, there's a kind of belonging that's not, you know, conferred to you by the state or by the, by the nation. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And I think that really gave me such a, a wave of peace. And I, and I think I'm still unpacking that too. 
mm. like what that means to be grounded in the land, mm. the land itself, not quote unquote Australia. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And it's such a strange feeling, you know, that be, be, and it's all about being grounded, you know. When I, I'm I'm a mountain girl, you know, I'm bush girl. <laughs> you won't find me down in the coast. <laughs> I actually have a real distaste for salt water. I hate it. I hate how it freezes up my hair and everything. Don't like it. So I'm a mountain girl. But being able to really put my foot down on those basalt rocks and just mm. stand there and just look over the land and just you know that's home this is who I am this is me this is you, you feel know. it in your body yeah you do and you really do feel it in your body you feel it in your soul you know this is um uh you know this is who you are yeah you just stand on those rocks and you put your feet on the ground and you can hear the old people calling out to you and the wind blowing through and it's like okay you know this is yeah this is it um and for me I think throughout my life not just not even just from from external forces even from within the community we've been told that everything we did was wrong was bad was was um, was terrible and needed to be changed basically we have to be white we have to be white we have to speak English you have to go to church you have to change your name to English name you have to just any attachment to tradition and culture was banned by force. And for me, coming from a space where I have been taught to think of myself like that, I felt I had very, very low self-confidence because even when I went to an English-speaking country, they still call me a non-English-speaking person. Of the six other languages I speak, they choose to define me by that. And then for me, it just hit me and I was like, well, I speak other languages, I, I speak six other languages, and that should be good. And I felt like, and for me, that started to give me a little bit of comfort in terms of diving deeper okay. and asking, who am I? Even the name thing. Mm. So, came to Australia, spent two years trying to find a job. And my father-in-law, he's from South Africa, he told me, I come from South Africa and I know what, how racism works. So I'm not telling you to change your identity, but can you change your names and, and, and make it English-sized? And so I wrote my name as James L, uh, abbreviating my African name. And the amount of interviews I was called to, I couldn't schedule properly. And for me, that inspired me to start looking at who am I without all these wrappings that are not mine, you know? And I, I find that very empowering and, and, and really important that in that one name, in just one name, it means so much more. And for me, that is a lot more empowering than the idea of, no, no, you, you, you have to be this way or everything else is wrong. And I begin asking, is it really wrong? And I realize, no, it's not. It was just somebody thinking they had power to tell you who you are. And I'm like, no, I'm not, I'm not going to accept that. Just to bring it back to nature and connection. Because one of the things that I know from the Monubu and Milan peoples from Mindanao, well, they were quite attentive to nature. So one of the things that they actually did, when they hunted warty pigs, 
they hunted them during the mid-dry season when the pigs were feeding on the fruiting bodies of the cinnamon and oak trees, which means that when they hunted, the animals weren't under stress. They were hungry, there was plenty of food to eat. So when you hunted them, you weren't necessarily putting population pressures on the warty pigs. How does it sort of play out in terms of um, water and culture? Yeah, well, we definitely relied on, I suppose, the natural cycle. When there was a certain star in the sky, that meant it was a great time to go get some grub, you know, some witchy grub. When it was time for burning, to clear the fields, that was a great time to catch rue. But it's also in regards to the relations, like when this flower blooms, this is when you can go and do that. When this animal migrates, so you know, those kinds of examples yeah. and being in tune with that cycle and really the taking advantage of um, colonisation which is all about bending nature to, to your will yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that's, that's another really great point as well you know we've been, we've been here for thousands of generations you know and being so in tune with that cycle and then colonisation happens and it's only really been 300 years and now we've got aeroplanes and bullet trains and everything else like that and nature hasn't had a chance to catch up and we're expecting nature to adapt to us rather than the other way around. We should be adapting to nature. What's the way forward then? We've sort of touched on how Indigenous peoples held themselves in balance with nature. We talked about the disruption of colonisation. So what's the way forward after all that? Even starting small, putting out water, putting out food, for your native animals, planting native, and not, not just native plants in general, but uh, locally native plants, you know, specific to the area where you're living. And then, you know, even going a little bit further than that, um, you know, understanding traditional sciences. People like to use the term traditional knowledge, but in, in the end it is a science. Yes. It's, it's understanding the, uh, the physics, the physiology, uh, the behaviour, the, you know, the, the way the earth revolves and the tides, and, you know, but understanding those traditional knowledges and then going into the big picture from there and then really going into the whole let's stop extinction <laughs> thing. <laughs> um, there is even beliefs that, you know, animals look after us too. When we were growing up, we used to ask a particular bird for directions and to tell you. And it can, you can ask the, the bird for, for predictions. So for example, you, you would say the bird was called Lilikojo. It's a black big bird with a long crest. And so when you, when you call the animal and then you observe, so you, you could even ask questions like, oh, where am I going to get married? And then the animal, you know, <laughs> um, it will tell you. But it's just recognizing that that local knowledge is really, really important. That we can't look after the land in Wadarong country just as how we do back in England. It's not the same land. It's not the same system. It's different. So we need to learn about what is here. We actually have something really similar. Um, when the grass parrots came out, I said yeah. the sun was going to come out yeah. next day. It, it was it 30 yeah. degrees. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes people think that it's superstition, but then I'm like, it's like observations over thousands of years. Mm. In Mindanao, there's the Rufus Hornbill is a timekeeper. The same for Manusians in PNG on Manus Island, Chalka, was a time, mm. which is a kind of endemic bird. A yeah. timekeeper as well. Mm. You know? Yeah, we have one too. Here. You have a timekeeper bird. Looks like the dove that is here. 
but um, it's, the sound goes like this. So our, our parents and grandparents would tell us, that we're like, all right, we're going to come this, this time, you know. So basically 12 o'clock, it would, it would say that 12 times. One of the takeaways for me is that how important it is to actually listen to Indigenous peoples about their worldview, their philosophy, this entire life world's there. And I think for me it goes back to the idea that once you start paying attention, you discover more of that connection, not just to nature, but with other people. When I think about the crises that we're facing, it's really important to have everyone be on the same page and to share that sense of responsibility. Thank you to Stephanie Skinner and James Lejogo Lombe Simon, and also a big thanks to Fatima Misham, who led today's episode of Off Track. I'm Ann Jones, and more thought-provoking adventures in your ears next time. That's when I'll take you somewhere else. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.